All right, yes, my name is Molly Jo. I go here with my parents and my brother, and um, I'm involved in young adults, and I'm so glad I'm reading today's passage with my zero years of marriage experience. So, <laughs> Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, so we're heading back into Ephesians this week, and uh, we're getting closer to the end, but we're looking at what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and specifically in relationship to our marriages, all part of this household code section that Paul is talking about. And though what he says is so much relevance, not just for married couples, but for singles or divorced or, or, or those who uh, are, are widowed in some way. And I also assume that each week there's people joining us, I know there are, that haven't been with us the whole journey. And so just a, a brief recap of where we've been. We've been in Ephesians for uh, quite a while now, since September, I believe. And so we've been talking about the first half of Ephesians has been about what does it mean now that, that we are now in Christ, that Christ has saved us by grace uh, not by our own works, but by everything that he has done for us. And it emphasized the incredible work that God has done in our lives. And then the second half of the book, starting in chapter 4, is all about now how shall we live as a result of this. Now that we are in Christ, how shall we live, living and loving more like Jesus, walking in love, walking in holiness, walking in the light. And as we're jumping into the section we're in right now, the, what he's been talking about in this present section is he said we must be filled with the Spirit, and then he gives kind of four examples of what that is, and, and the last one was by submitting to one another in love. And this idea of being filled with the Spirit of actually, what is it, how do we actually increasingly live in love more like Jesus? And he's going to say what we looked at last week was submitting to one to another. And he uses the specific example then of wives submitting to husbands, and so last week that's what we were spending our time looking at, submitting to one another as wives even submit to their husbands. As it says in 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And so we were talking about last week, of what does it mean for us to sacrificially lay down our lives for one another? And that submission is not only for wives, but it's actually called for all believers who are followers of Christ. As Jesus called all of us to love one another in the way that he loves us. And it's rooted in that command of Christ. And then Paul says in the next verse, as we get into today's passage, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So Paul says to husbands that they are the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. And so today I want to look at how Paul describes the role of a husband as the head in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And, and men, this is a chance to buckle up a little bit because this might be a little bit different than maybe if you've grown up in the church of how we've understood and how we, we maybe have, have understood grown up believing. The following verses, Paul is going to lay out the role of husbands with more clarity than anywhere else in all of Scripture. 
This is the best place, the primary place in all of Scripture to see what is spoken of in regarding to the role of a husband and authority in a marriage. This is the best place for that, far and away. And Paul just, you know, isn't going to start it off by saying, you know, it's time for husbands to kick up their feet when they get home from work and turn on the football and ask their wife what's for dinner. That's not what he's emphasizing. He's not going to say that it's time for husbands to be served. He's not going to say that it's time for husbands to have their weight, their voices carry more weight in decision making or that even that husbands are in charge. That's not what he's going to be talking about here. So let's look at, as we jump in, to see what Paul says is the role of a husband as head looks like. And specifically, because he's going to show what Jesus' role as head of the church looks like. So jumping into verse 25, he puts it this way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's where Paul starts talking directly to husbands. Now remember, the context here is mutual submission. Submit one to another, humbly yielding in service to one another out of love. That's the context here, that marriage is a submission competition as we talked about last week. And so now Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And then specifically, he says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now remember, this is radical at that time. Even today it is. But at that time, this was not a culture that valued women. Wives were the property of their husbands. We, we talked about this last week when I gave multiple quotes from some of the Greek philosophers of the time. And today, I want to just head back and show a couple examples from the Jewish literature at that time and leaders, and specifically Jewish writings of the Apocrypha. Some of you may know what that is. It's little, there's those books that sometimes are found in some Bibles between the Old and the New Testament. They're not part of canons. So we don't believe they're divinely inspired, but they're often there because they're really good insights of considered Jewish wisdom literature that were written around the time of Christ and just before it that help us understand what was going on in that culture and their way of thinking. And one of those books is called the Book of Sirach or also known as Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. And it's kind of like uh, the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes at that time. And so here's a couple of quotes from it, and they may surprise you as they're pretty ridiculous. Okay, starting in Book of Sirach 25, verse 16 says, I would rather live, and again, this is to get insight into the way they viewed women at the time and wives. I would rather live in the same house with a lion or a dragon than with a bad wife. When a wife is in a bad mood, her expression changes until she looks like an angry bear. Her husband has to go and eat with the neighbors where he can't hold back his bitter size. Compared with the trouble caused by a woman, any other trouble looks small. Many may such women suffer the fate of sinners. I mean, this is this, this, this insanely misogynistic understanding that was at the time. 24. Sin began with a woman, and we must all die because of her. Talk about blame shifting. This is insane. This is in what is considered holy scripture by many. Don't let a bad wife have her way. Don't listen to her any more than you would allow water to leak from a cistern. If she won't do as you tell her, divorce her. How sick is that? Next one, chapter 9. Don't be jealous of the wife you love. And I just had to put this in there, verse 4. Don't keep company with female musicians. Um, very, very relevant. Sorry, Esther. Um, I mean, this is this insanely misogynistic worldview at the time that, that women, and this was in their holy writings, and this is the gentle ones. It gets insanely terrible in other sections of it. I mean, this is, this is just insane. This view, this view of what was going on, that, that this was a window into their understanding of women and marriage. And, and this, this understanding is terrible as we see what the culture was like at that time, or maybe for like Andrew Tate bros of today, or some Driscollites maybe of today that would hold similar views. But divorce, where it says divorce your wife if she doesn't do what you tell her. Beware of women, for they are a temptress. Though again, if you grew up in the purity culture, we were basically saying the same thing in the 80s and 90s. 
Woman is the root of sin, and she is the cause of all evil. We just complete blame shifting. Don't let a wife have her way, is what this says. Men, you must be in control and power and dominate your wives, is the understanding. I mean, this is just sick. You know, last week, I emphasized this, but when you come to Scripture, this will be very important as we come to it, that, that we actually seek to understand, to the best of our ability, what it meant to the people it was written to. Because if we only just read a scripture, apply it directly today, we can, at best, we'll usually misunderstand the context. But at worst, we can actually cause really a lot of harm to ourselves or others as we just apply things immediately into our situation. Um, because the Bible is written at a different time, to a different place, to different people, over 2,000 years ago, to a radically different culture. And so that's why I'm sharing background, because it's important to understand what was going on in the situation it was written to that Paul is actually writing to. And it's, it's different for every letter. Whenever I, fall, I study the Bible, just heads up, I, I use what's called the inductive study, Bible study method. If you've ever done anything by K. Arthur, you've, you've seen that kind of model before. It's a very traditional, long-time understanding that when you go to the scriptures, you first observe and you see what does the text say, and you want to look at the context around it and read it over and over again. And then you do interpretation, and you ask, what did it mean to the people it was written to? So you seek to understand their culture and what was going on, and, and then you take the text and say, what did it mean in that culture at that time? And at that point, then you move to the final step of application where you ask now, how do we take that truth that applies to them and apply it to our, to our world today? And it's important when coming to texts that are so steeped in culture that we take time to actually seek, understand what did this mean to them? And for them at that time, this was radical. It's radical for us, but it was a, a thousand times more radical at that time. Paul is writing to a culture that destroyed the worth and value of women. Nowhere within any ancient writings of any kind has been found where they're addressing the household code of treating families of any writings at that time is it ever spoken of of husbands love your wives. That was a radical concept because that was not the understanding of marriage at that point. There would have been exceptions, but there's no ancient writings on that. So this is a radical redefining of what marriage is for that time. And just like we see in the following verses how he radically defines parenting and slavery, all of it's going to be through this lens of loving one another the way that Christ has loved us. And just one quick point here. Today we're going to be talking a lot about husbands because that's literally what it's addressing. But if you aren't one of those, and that would be many of us in this room, know that it still applies just as much as we're going to see. This, is, don't, this isn't just tuning out because, hey, I'm not a husband. It applies just as much to anyone as we're going to see in this. So Paul says, starting in 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is how husbands are to love their wives. This is the definition of what it means for husbands to be the head as Jesus is the head. Right? This is the defining coming right after what it said before. Husbands, you are the head like Jesus is the head. Here is how Jesus is the head. He gave himself up for us to love wives or wives as Christ loved the church. To give ourselves over to our wives. You know, I had this in verse, I have it inscribed in my wedding ring when we got married, is it's, this is the calling of us as husbands, is 525, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And so now Paul is going to break down what he means by this. He's going to keep breaking down this idea of headship and what it looks like. Now again, I'm emphasizing this because there's something in the church where we come up with some, sometimes some, some pretty twisted ideas of what headship is that are totally beyond what scripture says. Sometimes the focus is on power or decision-making or obedience or deferring to the husband. But you see, this is the place in Scripture we're about to read, and we are reading right here, where this whole idea of headship comes from. 
Other than a short scripture in 1 Corinthians where it's talking about the angels and head coverings and literally no scholar fully understands what the heck Paul was talking about there. We can only make guesses as to that. This is the place in all the scripture that really talks about headship and what authority in marriage and those positions look like. So this is where we get that definition from. And so let's, we're, today we're going to look at how Paul describes what headship is and, and the role of a husband in a marriage. And I want to start with a, a quote from a, a great scholar, Greek scholar, uh, Dr. Clinton Arnold. It's out of the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary. And, and here's what he has to say about this passage. He says, we can fall into grave error by not seeing certain words, exhortations, or ideas in light of the passage as a whole. That's observation. Keep looking at the text. Look at the whole context. One important illustration of this is the statement that the husband is the head of the wife. Some of us have consciously put a period at the end of that statement rather than reading it in light of the next clause as Christ is the head of the church. That means that headship is defined not in terms of the Roman view of headship in marriage, but rather in terms of Christ's relationship to the church. There are enormous implications to this that render the passage countercultural and not defined by the Roman notion of immanu or in marital submission. Immanu, or it's called cum manu, was the Roman understanding of marriage where the husband has basically adopts the wife as his property when they are married, right? That is the Roman understanding of absolute power dynamics like a soldier to a commander. He continues. This pattern Paul provides completely redefines what every first century man in the churches would have assumed as an important role in their, or as important in their role as husbands. They are no longer to look at the heavy-handed, oppressive ways that their fathers and grandfathers ruled in their homes. Rather, they must now look to Christ to see what it truly means to be a leader. Amen. So this is where we're heading. So Paul. So. There, Clinton Arnold is saying that far too often this passage has been read, wives submit, or the husband is the head, and, and we stop there. And, and we see, though, that that, that is what, what Roman submission is like. That's what that, that is showing, that when we stop there, that this is like a soldier to a commander, submit and obey. That's what the Romans did. That's in Manu, or the Kuman, as we said, where the wife, again, is basically property of her husband. But that is not the way of Jesus-centered headship. Jesus is countercultural. The kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Here in this text, in this passage, which is the passage on this in Scripture, headship is defined by how Jesus loves the church, not how Roman commanders lead an army. And here has been a massive misunderstanding in so much of church history. So we want to look at how Paul describes this role of a husband rather than how our culture describes it. Amen? All right, so husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church when he gave himself for the church. And then Paul begins to describe why Jesus did this for the church. It almost seems like a tangent when Paul goes off on this, but we're going to see it's no tangent at all. It's central to his message. So verse 26, he puts it this way. He does this so that he, Christ, might sanctify her, sanctify her the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, Jesus wants to sanctify the church. And that means to be holy, to be set apart uh, by, by Christ. And, and notice, just like earlier in this letter, Jesus is the one sanctifying the church. It's not something that the church can do on their own. All the good works, all the sin avoidance we do in the world can't make us holy. Only Christ can do that, right? We cannot, by our own efforts, become holy. Jesus' death and resurrection is what paid for our sin. This is not something that a husband can do for their wife. We cannot make our spouses holy. 
Paul is speaking of the gospel here, that the word, the work of Christ, and that he loves us so much that he says that, he, that Jesus would cleanse the church by the washing of the water, or washing of water with the word. Now, even that phrase, the washing of water with the word, may seem a little strange. What is that referring to? But it's really just a quote of Ezekiel back in the prophets from over 600 years ago when Ezekiel was prophesying about that Jesus would come and the Holy Spirit would come. And it's not confusing at all when you just read that passage. So here's what it says in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel about the future when Jesus would come. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is what Paul is referring to. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols that he will purify. He will make us holy. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your, from you, I will move you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's where that idea comes from. So what is, this is why Paul's quoting this, that Jesus washes us clean through his word, which is the gospel, that's how Paul usually refers to that, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now remember, the entire context of this passage is about us being spirit-filled believers and spirit-filled fathers and mothers and wives and husbands. So Jesus washes our sins away. He sanctifies us and makes us holy by his word, the gospel, the truth of that, through the Holy Spirit. And, and why does this matter? Why is he emphasizing this? Why do we need to grow in sanctification? Which basically, again, is becoming more like Jesus. So the next verse, verse 27, he's going to give the reason why. He says, that he, being Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus wants for us to be holy and blameless and to be filled with the Spirit. He longed for us to increasingly become more and more the way he created us to be. Remember, this is actually how Paul started off this letter back, in, letter back in chapter 1, verse 4. Right as he opens up the letter, Paul describes why he created us this way. He says, For he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. God wants us to increasingly become more like Jesus. That's what he created us for, to dwell with us for all of eternity, to be with him. This is how he created us. And in Christ, he is sanctifying us through his word, the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he created us to experience this life. And so Jesus gives his life to pay for our sin, and he washes us. He washes by his spirit. He washes us so that we can become holy, purified, spotless, without wrinkle, as he says. And again, hear this. Jesus washes us clean. He came so that he would wash us clean to present us holy before God with no wrinkle or spot. Jesus paid it all. Amen? And again, hear this. Jesus came to wash us clean. This is the gospel right here, right in the midst of marriage. You can't talk about marriage without getting caught up in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus and you're here today, this is the gospel that Jesus came because he wants relationship with us. And he came and he washes us clean by his spirit. He wants to take away our junk and our garbage and all the brokenness and wash us clean so that we can dwell with him for all of eternity and we can experience his life and life. And if you do know Jesus, do you actually believe this is true? I know so many Christians that reject this. They say, yeah, I know some he did some good things, but I'm not spotless, I'm not pure. I'm not clean. I'm as wrinkled as can be, and I'm a mess because of what I've done or what's been done to me. And you're just rejecting what Jesus has said. 
You're rejecting Scripture. You're rejecting the authority of what Christ has done. If you believe in Jesus, you've given your life to Him. We've been purified. We've been made clean. We are spotless without wrinkle. Amen? So Paul gives us this amazing gospel message, again, right in the middle of this passage on marriage. And what he's doing is he's saying, this is how husbands are to love their wives. That's the example, this incredible work that Christ has done in sacrificing his life for us. He says, that is what headship looks like. This is what it means to sacrificially love, to give all of who we are for someone else. And so he says in the next, in verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He says, this is the kind of love that husbands must give to their wife. The same intensity with which Christ gave his life for the church, that's in the same way the way we are supposed to love our wives. And as husbands, we we can't sanctify our wives. We are not Jesus. But we can point them to Jesus. We can reflect the love of Christ to them. There's something incredibly beautiful here in this description of, that Paul gives where he puts marriage right at the center of the description of Jesus' sanctifying love for us. And he says, husbands, love your wives like this, with the sanctifying kind of love. In writing about this passage, I love in his commentary, Dr. Kent Hughes says, husbands must ask this question. Husbands, you should take a picture of this and ask it honestly. Is our wife more like Christ because she is married to us? Or is she like Christ in spite of us? What a beautiful question to ponder. Are we loving and living in such a way that our wife becomes more like Christ and more sanctified because of the way in which we love? Our love for one another in marriage is supposed to grow us in holiness and righteousness. You know, Gary Thomas, in his incredible book called Sacred Marriage, he says that marriage is a call to holiness more than happiness. And it's that problem, we make it all about happiness that everything goes wrong. We completely lose the point. There is no better place to grow in sanctification than in regularly having to die to yourself right next to another sinner, an imperfect person. But to have to actually, we have to engage in that process of growing together and pointing one another to Jesus and sacrificially loving one another. If not, it'll just pull us apart from one another cause us to move more towards roommates who just happen to have sex, like friends with benefits or something with those we're married to. In fact, I want to recommend this this book to you, Sacred Marriage. It's it's a few years old, but it's one of the very best books I know on kind of recentering our marriage. And he not only wrote the book, he he actually made a video series about it and a participation guide. And I just want to encourage you, you, if you've never read it, please take a look at it. In fact, if you don't use it, we as a church, we pay for a resource for everyone in our church. Uh, it's kind of called like the Netflix of discipleship tools. It's called Right Now Media. Anyone that comes here, you can get access to it. And in, Right Now Media is actually this incredible thing. It, it's got endless videos on discipleship, on growing, on Bible studies, on marriage. It's got a great kids section, including the very best teaching there is on helping kids understand the Bible and learn the Bible called What's in the Bible, made by the guy that, that made VeggieTales back in the day that, in fact, most adults would learn a ton by watching it, entertaining and engaging, but actually teaches through all the scripture. Um, and there's so many other Bible studies and other things like that. We pay for a license for everyone in the church. All you have to do is go to our website under messages. There's a link that says Right Now Media. Click on it. Click on the link there, and we'll send you a code, and you have access to it with, with again, thousands and thousands of videos there. But if you go under Topicals and Marriage, you'll see endless videos on marriage for working on your marriage. And one of those series, you can just type it in Sacred Marriage, is a series on this book, Sacred Marriage. And I want to encourage you, if you've not done recently an investment into your marriage, Buy the book, buy the participant's guide, and there's six 23-minute videos, I think, on this thing. Do them together with your spouse. 
It is incredible stuff helping to kind of redefine what marriage is. Whether you're young or old in your marriage, I can't recommend it enough. Or do it with a home group or something. If you want to elevate your marriage, if you want to grow deeper in your marriage, you're going to benefit more from doing that than from any sermon I could ever preach on the subject. I can't recommend it enough. Okay, so Paul tells them, verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. It's kind of a weird way to put it. He says a husband needs to love, love their wife as much as they love their own body. Why? Next verse, verse 28, 29, he says, no one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. So Paul says that when a man loves his wife, he's actually loving himself. It's kind of strange, but he goes on to say that no one hates his own body, but they feed and they care for it. He says, as we care for our wives, we are actually caring for ourselves. How? He says, because we are one flesh. We are one body. To love our wives is to love ourselves. We can't see ourselves as against one another. We're not in competition with ourselves. So husbands, do we see our wife's needs and desires as equal, if not more important than our own? Do we genuinely see that? Because the reality is most of us don't. An example of this, I know many men who work and make more money their wife than the primary breadwinners, and because they make the money, they feel entitled to buy whatever they want. Meanwhile, the, the wife feels beholden to the husband of how to use finances in the family because the husband might earn most of the money. Or sometimes it's vice versa, and the wife earns more. Either way, they feel somehow entitled or privileged because they are the ones earning the money, the other person is not. And if in some way you feel that gives you power, or in some way you can use that to influence, you don't understand who Jesus is, and you do not understand what it means to sacrificially love one another. That is completely against the teachings of Jesus. That is not loving like Christ. Or what about, what about as we spoke about last week? Last week we mentioned conjugal rights in 1 Corinthians. The way that husbands and wives treat one another in the bedroom. You know, studies have shown that there is an over 50%, almost a 50% disparity in Christian husbands who are sexually satisfied versus Christian wives. Far too many Christian husbands are failing to love their wives like Christ or their own bodies, even in the bedroom or maybe especially in the bedroom. And I actually just want to make, recommend another book here. Um, one of the most enlightening books I've read in the last couple of years. Uh, and it's called The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregoire. Uh, she did a study of 20,000 Christian women. And the results are genuinely like earth-shattering when it comes to the understanding of Christian marriage today. Uh, I can't recommend enough. I mean, to me, every Christian married couple should read this. Is it, it destroys so many of the misconceptions that Christians have believed about marriage and sex over the years. Especially if you grew up being influenced by the purity culture of the 80s and 90s. And it really points even how downright dangerous so many of the Christian books that are out there on marriage over the years are, are, are in promoting really harmful ideas about marriage and sex. So Paul is saying we must love one another as we love our own bodies. That's what the, the, the definition of love, of caring for one another is, the way that Christ loved us. And if he wasn't strong enough about saying a man must love his wife like his own body, next he's going to quote Genesis, and that's going to be his foundation. He goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 2 and says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Again, exact quotation of Genesis chapter 2. So Paul again emphasizes that the man must leave his father and mother and joins or cleaves to his wife as one body. Notice yet again, the weight is placed upon the man leaving his father, leaving his family, and the husband and wife becoming one. 
They must leave the father and mother and they cleave to the spouse. This is them becoming one. Emphasis that we are one body as a family. We're supposed to leave the parents and become one body. And I mean, I could do a whole sermon series on just this idea of leaving and cleaving, as it's often called, of leaving our parents and cleaving to our spouse. Um, that when married parents are called to leave or to, to release their children and, and, and fathers or, or husbands and wives are called to leave their parents and, and cleave to their spouse. And some married couples don't actually leave their parents. And this isn't referring to physical proximity. The idea that where kids are supposed to live away from their parents, that's a modern Western concept. That wasn't what was done for most of history. But it has much more to do with submission to authority. It has much more to do with the loudest voice in their lives at the time. Sometimes it is necessary to leave physically, but this is about becoming one, about spouses learning to submit to their spouse and to one another and, and not having the voices of parents being the primary voices that are influencing them. And, and in fact, just a, a brief word to parents of adult children who are married or getting married, have you genuinely released them? Or do you still hold on? One of the best ways to actually love our children is to obey Christ in Scripture and release them to their spouses. And it's very hard to do that sometimes. Sometimes we can still manipulate through shame and guilt and all sorts of ways of trying to influence them in different ways, and we can really mess with their new marriage as, as we do that. And so as parents, I mean, I haven't got to that stage yet, and I'm terrified whenever that day comes. Um, that's what we are called to do. And for young married couples or old married couples, are you allowing in-laws or parents to have greater influence than your spouse in the way that your marriage is run? I've seen so many marriages where it just be kind of run through the parents, and guilt and shame are primary motivators of how we engage. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to our parents. Absolutely. The greatest wisdom we've received in our marriage has been from my mother and father. And, but those are influences that we invite in. And then we take the counsel and Sarah and I just determine how we actually follow that out. It's beyond clear here in scripture. We are called to leave father and mother as we engage in marriage as husband and wife. Amen? All right. So Paul is saying we are one body. We are one flesh. And husbands, again, are to love their wives like they love themselves. And Paul can't even make sense of how it all works. And so he says in the next verse, 32, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And Paul then reflects on all that he's shared and all these talk about Christ being one and this idea of the man and woman becoming united as one flesh when they're married. And he looks at that and he says, it's a great mystery. It cannot be understood. This is something that only God has done. But he says, what we do know is that this is an illustration of how Christ and the church are one. And therefore, it's an illustration of how we are to love one another. That is the degree to which we are to love one another. And then he finishes the last verse in the chapter with a summary statement. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there it is again. He comes back around yet again. A husband must love his wife like he loves himself. And again, why like himself? Because they are one flesh. That is the degree to which we must see a marriage. One flesh. To serve our wives is to serve ourselves. To love his wife is to love himself. And Paul says that a wife must respect her husband. So, so do you see why this is so radical into that situation at the time? Speaking to a Roman and a Jewish culture that only understood authority and, as power, that domination and control and ownership, Paul saying, is saying we are not to live in a Roman kingdom culture, but in Jesus' kingdom culture. He says this is what headship looks like for followers of Jesus. It is a sacrificial love. 
To love our wives, we are loving ourselves. To love our wives with the same love that Christ had when he gave his life on the cross. There is nothing here about domination. There's nothing about who is in charge because only Jesus is in charge. There's nothing about power and control and demanded obedience. Paul says our wives are like our own body. We do not dominate our own body. We don't make demands when we are one. I mean, this is just mutual submission unpacked a bit more. This is what leadership looks like for a follower of Jesus. This is what living and loving looks like in the home. And this kind of love is clearly impossible on our own. It's idealistic. It's only possible with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And we will continually fail to do this perfectly. But this is our calling to increasingly become like Christ and to love one another this way. You know, I've heard so many weird teachings on headship over the years about how the husband as the head has, has veto power in all major decisions, and how the husband and wife, if they can't get along, it's up to the husband to make the decision. As the head, he'll have to live with the consequences of that as the man in the house, as though somehow the wife doesn't live with his bad decisions, just him. Or that a wife must submit, and, and that means that she must let her husband make all the major decisions, all the financial decisions, all the major life decisions. And honestly, I don't understand how the heck you get that from this passage. Because this is where it comes from. Or I would say a twisted reading of this is where that comes from. Because this is not what this passage is saying. This is the, the primary text in all the scripture where we have the understanding laid down. It is so much, it's only the one single verse in other places. This is the passage where we get the idea of authority and relationships and headship in scripture. And if anything, you get the exact opposite idea here. Those things that we often speak about would be true in a Roman marriage. That would be Roman headship, not Jesus' headship. In living and loving like Jesus, a husband lays down his preferences for his wife, even major decisions. He listens to his wife. They decide together what's mutually agreed upon as they honor one another. If they're in disagreement, if there, there's nothing that says, therefore, the husband makes the final decision. In fact, if anything, what this passage tells us, they defer to their wife because we seek to love them that way. But in a healthy marriage, they work it out. They talk about it. They, and if they can't agree, sometimes we, have, we, we defer to the husband. Sometimes you defer to the wife or sometimes to the counsel of a wise third party. Because we are one flesh. We are one body. And like in a dance, it's, it's, we work in concert with one another. And I was just talking to a friend just this past week who shared a tragic example with their own parents who have come from a really traditional Christian understanding of marriage and where the wife doesn't believe she can make any decisions without her husband's approval. Everything goes through the husband. All finances, all decisions, all life, everything the father or the husband makes the decisions on. The problem is, is the husband is now in dementia and is no longer able to make good decisions. In fact, he's making some really poor ones because he can't remember what's going on. But the wife has been so, her understanding for so long has been, I must be beholden, I must submit, that that understanding is so twisted that now even in this stage of life, she can't make a single decision without him and everyone around is suffering. And the kids were saying, everyone is suffering. Our grandkids are suffering. We are suffering because she has no ability to even make her own decisions because she can't do anything that wouldn't be submission to her husband. It shouldn't be that way. That is not what scripture describes. Husbands, we are called to sacrificially love our wives like Christ loved the church. And it doesn't mean we never get what we desire because as this is intended, it's mutual submission competition. And so our wives are actively seeking to lift us up and serve us and defer to us at the same time. And let's be honest, sometimes the roles are reversed in marriages today. And sometimes it's actually it's a wife who dominates her husband. Sometimes even physically abusing husbands. 
I know people with very traditional understandings of marriage of, that, where the wife is actually the one who is in control and dominating and abusing of the spouse. And mentally or emotionally or physically or psychologically. And there's no place for that within any marriage. This is not something I've had with James, but that means the wife is going to take control. Like, no, no one gets control but Jesus. That is the Jesus way of doing this. That is a Christ-centered marriage. We are called to love one another, amen? And again, this passage assumes, let me just caveat, an ideal situation where both the wife and the husband are following Jesus. If you're not an ideal situation, it means whoever's following Jesus, the weight is placed upon them. And that isn't easy. As a Christian husband, I don't get to make final decisions because I'm a man. I don't get to say where we're moving because I'm a man. I don't get to decide what jobs we do or where the kids go to school or anything because I'm a man. My opinion doesn't carry greater weight because I'm a man or because I have different body parts. Sarah and I, we seek the Lord together. We don't have a perfect marriage, but when we differ, we process it together. Sometimes we defer to Sarah. Sometimes we defer to me. And out of love for one another, we trust one another because we are one. We are one body. And often we defer based on strengths. The truth is, because I have a degree in finance, usually in financial matters, Sarah will defer to me on those kinds of things as we talk about it. And because she's at home homeschooling the kids and teaching them all day and around the home a lot, I tend to defer to her in a ton of things because she's the one that has more experience and more understanding of so many of those decisions. That's mutual, mutual submission at work. It's a way of us caring for one another, using each other's strengths and loving one another. Yet through it all, what I do know is I'm called to lead through sacrificially loving my wife. And often it's hard, and often I fail. I'm often selfish. I often convince myself I am serving her when actually I realize I'm just serving myself. But it's hard sometimes. You know, I just failed miserably on this one just a couple weeks ago. I had texted Sarah to call me back, and uh, she was at home teaching the kids, and, and I answered the phone, and she kind of called me back. And I'll be honest, one of my pet peeves, one of my great, I don't have many, but I think my biggest pet peeve is people chewing with their mouth open. I don't know why it bothers me but chewing with your mouth open. And, and whenever I'm on the phone, I'm almost always, it's with an ear pod in my ear, so it's like, like noise-canceling, like really loud right in my ears. And so someone chewing while talking on the phone is like nails on a chalkboard or worse for me. It's like the, just cringes up and down my spine. And anyway, that day when Sarah called me back, she was chewing an apple or something and just chomp, chomp, chomp right in my ear. And it's, Ugh. and inside I told her, I, I mean, I was just, I was not the kindest. And I said, Sarah, you know I hate this. Can you call me back when, when you're done eating and rather than doing this now? And, and, and she apologized, and I, I said, but you, you know how much I hate it when you're chewing literally in my ear, and uh, can you just wait? And she says, I'm, I'm so sorry. She's like, I just finished teaching the kids school. I'm now making them lunch, and I was really hungry because I haven't eaten all morning, and I just wanted to grab, and you asked me to call you, so I'm calling you back right now. This is when I have time, and, and, and she said, I'm sorry. And, you know, in the moment, I felt totally justified in that moment. I mean, she should know I hate this. She should know I've talked about it before. She knows I don't like it. Why is she doing this to me? And then all of a sudden, I remembered, wait a second, you jerk. You are called to sacrificially love your wife. And she has been teaching the kids all morning. She finally has a free moment, so she's hungry because she hasn't eaten. And she is blessing you by returning your call, you jerk. <laughs> so don't be a jerk. I mean, what kind of selfish husband does that? Right? This one right here. Um, so I repented and I hung up the phone. Anyways, a couple minutes later, I was having lunch with Shannon, our executive pastor, the guy that just did announcements a few minutes ago. And I was telling him what an idiot I was. And I was telling him I just repented and I followed the Pauline school of discipleship, which means we boast of our weaknesses and Christ's grace and alone, right? And so that means I boast a lot because I screw up a lot. And so um, Shannon, as I was telling him that, he says, James, you think that's bad? He goes, check this out. I'm like, oh, really? He goes, uh, 
and I have permission to share this. I asked for permission. I didn't get permission from Lisa, though. So maybe that's bad. But um, Lisa and I have been, he, he told me, Lisa and I have been married for 27 years. And, and when we got married, he said, I told her there was one thing I would never do. He says, as a young, self-centered husband, I vowed I would never buy her ever feminine, feminine hygiene projects, products, right? He said, if it was, he said, even if it was an absolute emergency, as a young, selfish husband, I said, I will never do it, no matter the case. In fact, if I ever do it, I'll give you 50 bucks. That's how convinced I am I will never do this for you, right? Well done, Shannon. Um, and he said, I held, he told me, I held on to that for a very long time. He said, you, you know, we've counseled many couples, we've been married for so long, we have a great marriage. He said, but it took me forever to finally repent and to humble myself and begin to serve my wife in ways that actually served her and to love her. And so he said, so now I have no problem with that. And I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, so, so when did you finally repent and make this change? I was thinking 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe a few years ago, because he said he was already doing it. He says, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, all right, I get it, I get it. I said, you know, we're both terrible, but at least you're worse. Um, and so uh, uh, you win this round. Um, all right, that's comforting, right? So we, we all struggle with this. Instead of being self-serving, we are all called to love one another. And that means I must be faithful to my wife. It means I can't defile my marriage with porn. It means I can't defile my marriage with my flirting to other women. It, it means I, I must seek to love her with the same love that Christ had for me. So let's move to application. Now, this message is not only for husbands. But first, I do want to address husbands because it is spoken directly to them. And it's not an easy message. It's impossible, first of all, for us to live this out on our own. We can never do this on our own. Without the powering presence of the Holy Spirit, we will never be able to do this. So we must, must, must lean into him. But Jesus demonstrated what real leadership is. Hear this, husbands. And it does not look like the Roman Empire. Real leadership looks like the cross. It looks like Jesus with a towel, naked with a towel wrapped around him, washing his disciples' feet. That is what real headship looks like according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to Scripture. This love and service is not based upon our wives submitting to us. It's not based upon us, them earning our favor. It's not based upon they're, they're, the ways that they've deserved it in some way. It's not based upon their appearance or their health or their actions. Jesus loved the church even when she was unlovely and rebellious. This kind of love is unconditional. It's the example set by Jesus. So therefore, husbands, while we're not going to live it out to perfection, what areas do we need to grow in? Only you would know that. Do you see any of your areas of leadership as a husband as being in charge or dominating or belittling your spouse in any way? Do you see your opinions as more important than hers? Do you feel that she is beholden to you in any way because maybe you make more money? Are you daily seeking to grow in serving and loving her the way that Christ has loved us and asking for the Spirit's empowering presence to enable us to love beyond whatever we are actually capable of in our own strength? You know, so many men say proudly, I, I would die for my wife. And, and maybe that's true, good on you. But anyone can die for someone in a moment. The real question is, will we live for our wives? Daily, making choices to serve them, to ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to love them with sacrificial love. When we don't feel like it, when we're tired, when we feel she doesn't deserve it. So this morning, ask God to reveal to your heart where you need to grow as a husband and then have a conversation with your wife and repent where you need to repent. And then seek the Lord to how you can empower your wife to walk in her giftings, how you can help her flourish in the way that Christ has called her to be. If you haven't, seek her input and her direction as a family if that's not something you've done. 
Find out if you don't know what her deepest longings and desires are and then help empower her to see those fulfilled in her life. And seriously, I dare you to do this one. Have an honest conversation about conjugal rights and intimacy in the bedroom and her desires or her levels of satisfaction. I had someone tell me just last week after last week's message where I give a question for husbands to talk to each other. They said, we had a time where my wife and I, we had this, this, uh, this tense conversation. Afterwards, we got in the car for hours. And we're getting in the car because my wife turns to me, we are not answering James's questions right now, right? <laughs> like, we're not doing that right now. And I'm like, so don't even think about it, right? So find good timing to ask these kinds of questions. But um, husbands, pray daily for your wives. And husbands, ask yourself, is our wife more like Christ because she's married to us? Or is she like Christ in spite of us? In summary, we must love our wives like Christ loved the church. A suggestion of action, lead the way and invite your wife. Buy the book Sacred Marriage. Buy the Participants' Guide and go through that and find times, make it in your schedule to go through that with your spouse. Or if you haven't, find out, seek out couples counseling in some way and I can give some good recommendations on that. Husbands, may our marriages be patterned after Jesus, not after the Roman Empire. Amen? All right. Now, everyone else who's not a husband, Everything you've heard, maybe you think, wow, that's a lot on the shoulders of husbands. And it is. That's a lot of weight to put on it. But the truth is, none of this is unique to husbands. Jesus says in John 13, 34, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one another. This is where Paul gets this whole idea from of husbands love your wives this way. He took it right from Jesus' words that he spoke to all of his followers. Jesus called all of his followers to love one another like Christ loved us. It's not unique to husbands. Just like Paul called for everyone in 521 to mutually submit to one another, and then 22, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, right? The same thing Paul is doing here. Everyone is called to sacrificially love their spouse the way that Christ loved us. It is not unique to husbands. He's just singling them out because of this role of leadership. The call to sacrificially love one another is a universal calling upon every follower of Christ. It applies to all of us, husbands and wives and sons and daughters and children and parents and young and old. This is practically what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. Amen? May we grow in actually seeking to have Christ show us how we can put others' interests ahead of our own. To love in the way that he's loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, that you don't ask anything of us that you haven't done a thousand times greater for us, Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we can be so selfish. We can so easily put ourselves in, at the center and seek how others can serve our interests and, and seek the way to acquire as much for ourselves as we can. But you've called us to love one another sacrificially. Show us this morning, remind us this morning where we're moving in selfishness. Empower our men and our husbands to be men, to be the men you created them to be, Lord Jesus to sacrificially love our wives. Where there's arrogance and pride, oh, Jesus, humble us. Where we are scared of showing weakness, oh, Jesus, show that only in weakness is your strength found. Empower us, Lord, to love others the way that you have loved us. To pursue your kind of headship, your kind of love and service and sacrifice. Jesus, give us the boldness for honest conversations this week. To be real and frank and transparent with one another. And for those who are not married, Lord, show us how to grow in what it means to love one another. 
not just when it's convenient. Holy Spirit, empower us with your love. Amen. Jesus, on our own, we are jerks. We're selfish. We need you, Jesus. You are our righteousness, Lord. We need you. Continue to reveal to our hearts how deeply we need you, that we would not seek to leave the house in the morning, even speak to our spouse before saying, Jesus, I need you. Empower me by the power of your spirit to love the way you called me to love. To increasingly become like you, Jesus, the person that you created us to be. Thank you, Jesus, for your longing for us and how for us you are. Move within our hearts. Radically transform our lives, Jesus. Transform our marriages. Draw us to you deeper and deeper. And for any here who do not know you are not following, Jesus, meet them in their heart today. Speak to them and call them out to you today, Jesus. That they need you whether they know it or not. Speak to that part of their heart that with, from creation, that part of you that calls them unto yourself, to their holy God, their creator. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.